The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 27th, 2015 from Slate. It's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. The other day, Mitt Romney said this in remembering his friend, Tom Stenberg, founder of Staples. Without Tom pushing it, I don't think we would have had Romney care. Without Romney care, I don't think we would have had Obamacare. So without Tom, a lot of people wouldn't have health insurance. To which a lot of people who still care pointed out, wait, Romney just endorsed Obamacare. Then Romney clarified, or Clara lied. He said, no, I didn't support Obamacare. I still don't support Obamacare because I think this should all be done on the state level. That's the important thing. But isn't that inconsistent? Didn't Romney just admit otherwise? Wasn't he saying that this was a good thing that people got insurance? So now he's saying, but it's a good thing that would be better off if it hadn't happened because of the specific level of government that provided the good thing. You know, it's like, thank God we got out of town and beat that zombie infestation. Yes, but thank goodness we only took State Highway 43, not I-90. I would have opposed opting for the federal thoroughfare. Maybe we should have let the zombies eat that one. Anyway, I have a better explanation for why Romney seemed to memorialize his friend by citing his role in the adoption of Obamacare. And here's my thought. Maybe, just maybe... Romney is terrible at eulogies. He is just ham-handed when asked to remember the dead. He talks about their lives and all the bad things they led to. He just can't help it. Here's Mitt Romney speaking at a funeral. Judith, Jack, Mitchell, your beautiful wives, Stephanie and Jane. You know, it's during times of grief like this that I think of something Helen Keller once said. I do not want the peace which passeth understanding want the understanding which bringeth peace. And your husband, your father George, was a great peace bringer. His soothing tones and his simple wisdom were such a calming influence to many who loved him. And I've got to say that they had a real detrimental impact on third quarter productivity. And when you consider how one life is but a ripple in a pond, it's not a stretch to think that he really hurt our overall competitiveness with the Chinese, not to mention the many other Pacific Rim nations who quite frankly don't give a rat's ass about Helen Keller. I'm Mitt Romney, and I approve this eulogy. On the show today, something called NPR Voice. It's all the rage. But first, speaking of rage, computers in the classroom, practically taking over the classroom and pushing aside our old friend, the textbook. The state of American textbooks is Texas. It's usually Texas. Whatever crazy idea Texas wants, it gets into the textbooks. Let's emphasize patriotism. Let's de-emphasize that period of really hard labor that no one asked for. Some people call it slavery. But there's another state of textbooks that I want to talk about, and it's how textbooks are interacting with uh, the digital future, if you will. Will Remus writes about technology for Slate, and he's done a deep dive into the world of textbooks and technology. He's come back from the classroom with this report. Hello, Will. Hi, Mike. So your report starts with a system called Alex. Alex. A-L-E-K-S. What's that stand for? You don't want to know. All right. (laughs) A-L-E-K-S. And it's essentially uh, a program where math students do math at their own pace. You got it. 
And so uh, describe it a little bit because you watched, you were in a classroom as uh, some Alexing was going on. Yeah. So this is a developmental math class. It's pre-algebra. It was at Westchester Community College in Valhalla, New York. I went there and uh, sat in on the class and all the students filed in, sat down, each at their individual computer, all facing away from the center of the room, each logged into their program. The teacher's at the back. She's got a dashboard. She can see what they're doing. And they're all moving through the material at a different pace. And the program is designed to figure out what they know, what they don't know, and always sort of be serving them the next concept that they're ready to tackle. You, as you sat there, you found out that the learning wasn't mainly going on computer to student. You really do need the teacher as part of that process. Yeah, you still do. I mean, this kind of stuff freaks teachers out because it's like, uh, you know, here's another place where robots are coming to take our jobs. And, you know, God forbid that that we have robots teaching our students in the future uh, and there's no place for teachers anymore. That's really not the case, at least at this point. The software is pretty smart. You know, you can watch it for a little bit. It does some cool stuff. Uh, it's going to get smarter, no doubt. It's the uh, This type of software is always tracking what the students are doing. So it's learning from it. It's sending those insights back to the textbook authors. It's sending them to the teachers. And then it's also applying its own sort of, you know, smart machine learning algorithms to figure out which pieces of content are actually helping students learn, which ones are just totally confusing and should probably be scrapped altogether. So it does some smart stuff, but it's not that smart. So if, if you keep getting a problem wrong, so you, you just, you can't figure out the product rule of exponents. You get mm -hmm. it wrong three times in a row. It'll show you a little like lesson from a textbook about the product rule of exponents. Maybe there can be a little video lecture that pops up. But ultimately, if you don't understand understand the concept, you're probably going to need the teacher to come over and help. And actually, that's what these companies, the, the part I found most interesting about this is that the textbook companies are really pitching this as a way to make teachers' jobs not just easier, but better, right? So, so instead of spending all your time grading kids' homework, more of your job is going around, meeting them right at the place where they're stuck, and then helping them over that hump. Is there anything, I know that the uh, idea of lecturing a classroom is widely derided and it clearly doesn't work for all students, but doesn't it work for some and doesn't it work really well in some areas? And isn't there something to say that some learners at some point would benefit from standing up in front of the classroom and giving a lesson? This is how you, uh, this is how you reduce fractions. All right, now go from there. At this point, the computer will take over, but like some lecture as a kickoff mechanism. Yeah. So in this class, there was no lecture even as a kickoff mechanism. I think you're right. I mean, I've, I, had some, I had some great lectures over the years. I, I probably slept through some great lectures over the years. Uh, there's a place for great lectures. And in an ideal world, I think what'll happen is this software will be used as a tool, but not the tool. It'll be something that reduces kind of the boring parts of the classroom experience, but it leaves room for that great lecture. It, re it leaves room. You know, the teacher that I talked to at the community college said when she sees on her computer screen that she's got three or four students all struggling with the same concept. She'll get them together uh, that class day. She'll plan out a little lesson for the three or four of them. The other students are still working along. Maybe they're doing great on their, you know, whatever it is they're working on. But for those three or four students, she can design like a really targeted lesson plan. I, as I read your article, there were a couple claims of success that I discounted, like a struggling school district in South Carolina said it works. Struggling school districts are always citing something that worked because, you know, people are trying to save their jobs. Or a charter school in Wisconsin. Again, huge grain of salt with charter school saying, hey, this disruption of regular education. But then there was it a RAND study. There was a legit study that seemed to indicate that there is some 
areas where computer-assisted or computer-driven teaching can have a good effect. Yeah, that, that study was really interesting. It was like this massive uh, six or seven-year study covering multiple states, a ton of different schools. It was controlled. And what it found was like mostly nothing, right? I mean, you study that many schools and you just tell them to use this software. You don't know how they're using it, whether they're doing it well or, you know, whether they're just uh, using it as an excuse to take some grant money or whatever. Uh, so most of the results were insignificant. But there actually was a finding that at the high school level, the schools that, that shaped their curriculum around the software to some extent, not in the first year they did, but in the second year that the schools did this, the, the students actually saw substantially better pass rates in that class than they did in the, you know, in the traditional teaching environment. So that was, that seemed like a real finding. But I think, you know, those big studies can also mask the huge variation that happens when you've got people doing this thoughtfully, and then you've got other people just throwing the software at the kids and being like, well, my job's done. Right. And it, uh, there's a trap of when you say, well, if, if everyone implements this perfectly, it can have a good effect. It's kind of naive to think that everyone will. And if you're system fails poorly, it's not the fault of the people implementing it at some point. It's the fault of you. I mean, failing poorly is failing. Yeah, I think uh, to me, that's like the interesting tension here is that when you talk to the textbook companies and the startups that are making this kind of software, they will tell you all the right things. You know, they yeah. will tell you this is not use the buzzwords. Yeah, not yeah. supposed to replace the teacher. This is, you know, this is a compliment. We, we want to shape our instruction around what the teachers are already doing. You know, uh, you know, this isn't for everybody. But at the same time, this is really profitable for them. You know, the, the print textbook industry was having a tough time because more and more kids are buying stuff used, you know, buying the books in online marketplaces. It's also just a tough model in general because you put out a new version three or four years later, it's outdated. You got to, you know, you got to scrap all those books and and do another one and, and print a whole another mess of books. They can now sell an individualized, personalized license to every student in every class every year. It's cheaper than a print textbook, but everybody's got to buy it. So now their revenue streams are steadier. And so there's an incentive for these companies, I think, to push these products, even in settings where they're not really appropriate. I'm not saying they're going to do that. I'm saying the incentive is there. Right. And if the reason that this uh, digital learning, if we want to call it that, is, to, is uh, gaining traction, it seems more driven by profit motives like new companies and textbook companies reinventing their business like McGraw-Hill, which won't even call itself a textbook company now. We're a learning science company. Yeah, at least they put spaces between those words because usually they don't in the tech business. But you know, is it that the educational experts, I'm not talking about stodgy, resistant to change teachers unions. I'm talking about cutting edge, you know, uh, Bank Street, Columbia. These are two New York teachers colleges. The pedagogy is pointing to this direction. Is the pedagogy pointing to this direction or is it more the textbook makers picking what little pedagogy there is and saying we can make some profit off of this? I think it's mixed. I think there's a lot of skepticism around how this will be implemented when you talk to people who, who study education, who are looking really closely at, at what's happening in a classroom and how learning transpires. That said, you know, I didn't hear anybody 
that I talked to. Maybe I just talked to the wrong people. I didn't hear anybody say, this is just a dumb idea. It's terrible. No. We, shouldn't, we shouldn't be using yeah. it at all. What I, what I heard was people saying, look, there have been efforts for the past hundred years to automate teaching and to, you know, and to make the textbook the teacher. You know, you go back to the behaviorist psychologist B.F. Skinner. He built a teaching machine in the 1950s. One of, the, one of his predecessors in the 1930s built one where it would like dole out a little piece of candy for students when they got the right answer. I mean, there's a sort of, there is a behavior strand of philosophy behind this idea that education is really about imparting some black and white skills to students and just drilling them on it in the you know in a smart way until mm-hmm. they've learned it and shown that they've mastered it and then that's you know then you're done they pass uh, so I think it'll be done in settings where it really is about mastering some concrete skills and it won't be over applied to settings where it's about sparking the imagination and teaching critical thinking and all that kind of thing you went to this class in Westchester. Was that set up by someone, by the college, or someone trying to say that this program is working? Yeah, both. It was So, so McGraw-Hill Education, I, I said, where is a place I can see this being implemented? Right. And they, they thought for a little bit. They tried to find something I could uh, hitch a train ride to from, from here in Manhattan. And they put me in touch with this community college teacher who runs this course. She's a, she's a thoughtful person. She runs the course really well. I came away impressed just as they planned it out. Okay, so that was my question, because as I read the article, it seemed to be a mixed bag. Like, the kid who just kept saying, I don't understand what these words were, and they needed the teacher's interaction to explain certain concepts. Would they say that's Alex working or Alex not working? I mean, they would say that's Alex working. They would also say, you know, Alex of 10 years from now might be able to do even that and leave, you know, even some smaller subset of tougher problems for the teacher to handle. Um, But I don't think... they didn't pitch it to me as like Alex should be doing everything today. That said, there are some startups out there that that are a little bit more ambitious, probably because their business is not tied to their relationships with uh, school districts. There's a startup called Newton that you know it's positioning itself as sort of like the Google of education. It's going to use big data. It's going to study what students are doing in their textbooks. It's going to it's going to sort of you know reinvent everything we know about teaching with these insights that it can draw from their behavior. It's going to track everything. Uh, and, you know, education 10 or 20 years from now will look totally different than it does today. I, you know, I will see. <laughs> um, there's only so much technology can do in the end. Will Remus covers technology for Slate. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Mike. Shaving is unbelievably expensive. Razors are, I just checked the International Razor Index, $38,000 for two, pack of two to be fair. No, but seriously, they're way too expensive and they don't last as long as they say they last. There's this whole scam where the razor company, Big Razor, you know the ones I'm talking about. Some of them have Stadia named in New England for them, where they try to tell you that they're actually more economic than some of the new razor alternatives. And they try to tell you, yeah, use them 34 times. That way you could get the maximized value. Forget all that and just remember Harry's. Harry's.com was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience for everyone. And they really do deliver a superior shave. They cut out the middleman and they offer an amazing shave at the fraction of the price. I will demonstrate. Starter kit, $15. It includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of the shave cream or the foaming gel. I like the foaming gel. As an added bonus, you can get five bucks off your first purchase with my code GIST. After using my code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for 10 bucks, and shipping is always free. So go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in my code GIST. 
with your first purchase. That's harrys.com and enter coupon code just to check out for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. And now the spiel. This weekend, an essay appeared in the New York Times, decrying NPR voice. What was that? Well, it's a little bit of loose language, but the author says, in addition to looser language, the speaker generally employs pauses and, particularly at the end of sentences, emphatic inflection. A result is the suggestion of spontaneous speech and unadulterated emotion. The irony is that such presentations are highly rehearsed, with each cesura calculated and every syllable stressed in advance. Cesura, which is a break between words within a metrical foot. So there were a lot of comments on this idea in my circle, maybe just in my circle, but you're listening to a podcast. You know what they mean by NPR voice. And it doesn't matter that this voice was illustrated or described as being promulgated by Ira Glass. Ira Glass, who hasn't worked for NPR in decades, you get the picture. The author of the piece, Teddy Wayne, is mostly right. A lot of people have interpreted this piece wrongly. They've used it as a jumping off point to say the way they speak is better than the authoritarian newsman or to use it to complain about vocal fry. But the piece wasn't engaging in that. I think the point that he's making, and I know because I've read many NPR pieces, is that there are certain ways that NPR, especially NPR broadcasters, rely on to convey authenticity. Now, they don't stutter because that would be an obvious affectation. In fact, it seems almost unjournalistic to throw a stutter into the speech where it didn't naturally occur. But they do pause in odd places where normal speakers wouldn't pause. So first, as a baseline, I want to play a hilarious bit of audio that's been making the rounds. This is from YouTube user Jamie DeLady. Good morning. I know I've already done a video in the past couple days, but ladies, it's pretty much legging weather. I love legging weather. I don't care if you don't like leggings. Don't judge me. They are comfortable. They don't cut into you. They're always the right length. I feel like pajamas. I love them. You can dress them up. You can dress them down. You can look like a frat girl or you can look pretty classy in them depending on what you choose to pair with them. So did you hear the pauses? Mostly where commas would go or around conjunctions before the word but, for instance, or when she's listing the benefits of leggings, she lists two things, and then a little pause to remember what the third might be. Some of you people like to use leggings as breeches, as pants pants. That ain't how they're supposed to be wore. If you can't wear a shirt that covers your tail so I can't tell that you got some Aztec print thongs on, you don't need to be wearing them. Do you hear how she didn't pause before the proper nouns? The specifics, they're already in her mind. She doesn't have to struggle to come up with them. Like if I were talking spontaneously about the most important event today, I would say hitting a home run in seven games in a row is something Daniel Murphy couldn't have anticipated. But if I were faking spontaneity, I might try to sell it like this. Hitting a home run in seven games in a row is something Daniel Murphy couldn't have anticipated. Hmm. We know where the proper noun is in most cases. We know the specific examples. That's not where we put the pause. So, you got to conceal it. You wear your longer shirt like a tunic. You wear your longer shirt, pause goes there, like a tunic. Not, you wear your longer shirt like a tunic. She knew she was going to say a tunic. There's one guy in public radio who I love. I love the guy, love the show. But his read has always struck me as 
faked spontaneity. It's Kurt Anderson of Studio 360. The whole movie feels like some remarkable love child of an action blockbuster and a tiny independent movie, which is exactly what the director Sebastian Schipper had in mind. Now I'll play Kurt Anderson speaking off the cuff. It's from a Charlie Rose interview in 2008. My point is not that Kurt doesn't pause in real life, not that he doesn't search for words, but in real life, when he searches for words, he does it like a real person really searching for words. And sometimes he stutters and sometimes he lands on an imperfect word or he just adheres to a cadence that mirrors actual speech. Here, listen to that. Uh, and, and so that's that's very exciting. I mean, we're, you know, we can despair about certain aspects of the culture going to hell in a handbasket or, or, or whatever. But the fact that a little thing like that, that is, is, is full of virtuosity and smartness and funny, not me- funny without being mean, which right. is hard to do, uh, uh, I, I, I get great pleasure out of that. So about 10 years ago at the radio station where I worked, WNYC, there was a show called The Next Big Thing, and its host was a guy named Dean Olsher. And Dean really thought about the read and how it should be presented, and he wanted to get at the issue of spontaneity. So what he would do is he'd have the reporters write their script, and then he'd take the script away, and then he'd say, no, just voice it. That yielded very mixed results, in my opinion. More successfully is he'd do a lot of interviews instead of relying on pre-written reflections of experts. Like in this case, there's a music expert. His name is Matt Glazer. And instead of having Matt write his reflections down, he interviewed Matt and it really sounded like someone talking. Here's the funny thing, though. Dean's introduction doesn't really sound like someone really talking. Let's listen. Everywhere we turn, it seems, we are confronted by... Albert Einstein, as it has been a century since he came up with his special theory of relativity. What better time to ponder the mysteries of the universe? Which is exactly what musician and educator Mac Glazer does whenever he thinks of Louis Armstrong. I first began to think about these things when I was reading a book by the uh, science writer James Glick. So in the intro, we got confronted by Albert Einstein, and whenever he thinks of Louis Armstrong, but in the actual speech, we got the science writer James Glick. Here's a fascinating wrinkle to the whole phenomenon. Now, there's lots of exciting new stuff to share with you, but first, I promise I won't be coy. Yes, you will hear the message in this episode. Right at the end of it, in fact. But by then, you might not want to. That was the new Panoply show, The Message. I say it's a Panoply show in the spirit of full disclosure and self-promotion. The narrator character, it's a character, it's radio theater. She sounds great. She sounds perfect because the person she's trying to sound like is a podcaster who is trying to sound like a real person and not always getting it exactly right. I'm not sure if this is difficult acting and detailed acting or like really, really easy acting with a lot of room for error. Because even if you, the actor, sound inauthentic, you're aping the style of someone aping the style of someone trying to be authentic. However, while the show is brilliantly acted overall, there are occasional line reads that don't sound perfectly authentic. Now, the other characters aren't trying to pretend to be podcasters who are trying to pretend to be real people. They're just acting as real people, and every once in a while, you get a line read like this, I think undone because of its weird pauses. You're not going to call my bluff here, Robin, because there's no bluff to call. I'm serious about this. I know it's a weird thing for a guy in my field to say. I think my field is one distinct thought that you would say as a unit, unless maybe you were trying to decide between my field and my position, and then it would come out more like a guy in my field 
I could be wrong, though this is my field. So it's not exactly like I don't have a leg to say nothing of a legging to stand on. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, lived her life with joy and abandon by seeing the good in everyone, which ultimately doomed her and her entire traveling party as it was overtaken by bandits posing as wounded children. Andy Bowers, the executive producer, didn't see what existed and ask why. He saw that which did not exist and asked why not. A particularly poor habit when the 16-wheeler was barreling towards him on that highway. To the end... The gist believed in the words of that old Eskimo legend. Perhaps they are not stars, but rather openings in heaven, where the love of our lost ones shines down to let us know they're happy. And he was fired from his job in the astronomy department, lost his health care, and died of gout. The end. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Julie Lifcott Hames, the host of Getting In. I'm the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and the author of How to Raise an Adult. Getting In is a new podcast from Panoply, following a group of high school seniors through the college admission process. And right now is crunch time, especially for students applying early decision. You know, when you put it all together, it's a lot. I don't really sleep. I drink a lot of black coffee. But, you know, I'm, I'm stressed, but I'm, I could be worse. I could be bored. That's what you'll hear on the new episode of Getting In from Panoply. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.